We're going to have our Bible reading now, so if you have a Bible, please do turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read from verses 19 to 39. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. <clears throat> Thank you, Jez, for reading that passage. And if you're following it in your Bibles on your phones or in uh, one of the blue Bibles we've got out, please do help yourself if you want to grab a Bible and, and follow the passage. That would be great if you've got it open at Hebrews 10. Um, Matthew, can you just flick on the slide? There should be a picture, which um, I don't know whether it, this will trigger a, a memory. This is the Chilean... Uh, mining accident and rescue from 2010. It's a long time ago, but one of the, still in, in, in terms of the history of mining, remains one of the most powerful and inspiring stories of survival. 33 workers in the San Jose Gold and Copper Mine uh, were trapped 700 metres below the surface when this mine collapsed on them in August the 5th, 2010. 
Uh, rescue workers from the National Emergency Service Office and uh, Navy and submarine experts were brought in, NASA engineers as well. Um, and it sounds very reminiscent when you sort of jump forward to sort of 2016 and, and the rescue of the Thai football team that were trapped in the cave as well and all the resources that went into rescuing those lads. Um, but here in Chile, they eventually were able to, using three drills, cut down 600 meters into the rock to reach these miners through a hole measuring 12 inches wide. And then they drilled large enough to get an escape capsule down there. Jorge um, Halagelos uh, recalled that as the mine began to rumble and dust filled the air, he envisioned his six-year-old grandson in his arms and his mother standing in front of him. And he thought, and he said, I'm not going to see my mother again. I'm not going to meet my grandson. And he said of himself, he's not particularly religious, but still, even as it seemed the worst was ahead, he said he felt God's presence. And 69 days later, on October the 13th, the final miner, the foreman, Louis Alberto, was rescued from the mine. And as everyone celebrated the rescue of these 33 miners, many pointed to a higher power, what they called a 34th miner, who they said was with them all along. In the aftermath of the rescue, those involved have recounted seemingly inexplicable miracles during their time underground and credited God with protecting them. God, many of them say, was that 34th miner. And in an, in an interview five years later, after the mine collapse, 2015, Alagelos um, said he was more thankful than ever. He said, there aren't words to continuing thanking God enough. Some remarkable, isn't it? A remarkable survival, a remarkable impact. Well, and I hope none of us ever find ourselves trapped 700 meters underground. Uh, I really don't want that to be the case. But when it comes to life, and I suppose metaphorically, we can feel ourselves trapped underground, overwhelmed. There's a time when we, we probably ask, will I ever get myself out of this situation? Will I survive? Will I pull through? Yeah, and you see, it's true in life in general, and it's definitely true in the Christian walk, the life with God. It has big challenges. It sometimes feels like those challenges are just too great for us to deal with. Whether it's uh, struggling with specific family or work situations, whether it's a bereavement or illness, maybe it's the weight of a personal emotional battle that's taking its toil on you. It could be as simple as the monotony of everyday life, the lack of that spark or the lack of energy. There's not much to look forward to. It's in these situations we find it hard to trust God. We've got to be honest. We, we find it hard to keep walking with him. God, am I going to make it through? And I hope that you've begun to see as we've looked through this letter of, to the Hebrew Christians, that it's a letter written to encourage Christians who were struggling, who were under pressure, who felt trapped and indeed tempted to turn back to their old way of life, which felt much easier. And so in this second part of the letter here in chapter 10, the second part of chapter 10, the writer gives us reasons to be confident followers of Jesus. Reasons not to throw away the immense gift that Christ has given us and secured for us. So, with Jesus, there is the gift of being not just able to survive, but to thrive. 
So let's have a look at this passage. We've got four points that will take us through the passage. And the first one's this. We've got to be confident Christians by drawing near to God, verses 19 to 22. And this is a theme we've looked at time and time again, drawing near to God, the gift of drawing near. Let's read verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, who has by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. These are fantastic verses. Again, just let the truth of what's been written here and that hopefully you've heard repeated over the weeks as we've looked at Hebrews, let it saturate your minds. We can go into God's presence. We've talked about this before. He takes us to the throne room through Jesus, the control centre of the universe. We can know God profoundly and personally. We can know him not through religious rituals, not through mind-bending drugs, not through super-spiritual encounters, but through Jesus Christ who opens the way, quite simply by relying and trusting on his completed work. His perfect life lived God's way. His sufficient sacrifice, that blood shed for us, taking away our sin and our guilt. His resurrection, guaranteeing he is where he needs to be, doing work right now in God's throne room, representing us, praying for us, bringing us into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're told that the tabernacle, with that curtain, verse 20, and we looked at this again uh, last week and, uh, and the week before, the tabernacle with its curtain, which was just this graphic, very real visual sign of the most holy place and a sign of just keeping out. This is where God is and no one else, stopping people from entering God's presence in the temple. Well, that curtain had been totally dismantled. It's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their Gospels all mention it. Jesus' death on the cross, the, uh, the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom. It's so significant. The Gospel writers mention it in their own accounts. As he died, as Jesus offered himself, verse 19, a new living way was opened. A secure way through his death. He went through the heavenly tabernacle to bring us into his home. Wow. And it's not just that that's changed. Look at verse 22. People who put their lives under Jesus' loving rule, who have their hearts sprinkled clean from that guilty conscience, their bodies washed with pure water, if, if we trust Jesus' death on the cross, then we are changed. God sees us differently. His bloodshed means we're cleaned up, we're forgiven, all our sins, all that guilt, all that shame, it's gone. But notice, this isn't about pie in the sky when you die. It's not an insurance policy just to cash in in future years. No, it's, this is a relationship with God that affects how we live here and now. You saw that again in verse 22. Draw near to God. We can draw near to God now. Well, what does that mean? In, in the letter of Hebrews, in the context in which the writer is talking, the last few chapters have focused on the Old Testament worship system, the tabernacle, the priest. To draw near to God, therefore, meant to, to serve him, to worship him. 
And yes, we can draw near to him in prayer. We can always come back to him looking for forgiveness, asking for it, asking for help. But it's also more proactive. Drawing near to God each day means we're living for him. It means that sort of as soon as the alarm goes off and we stumble out of bed, the conversation might start, well, Jesus, you've definitely not returned. And so there's another day for your glory. Uh, How can I live with you as my number one priority today? How's your kingdom going to be shown in in the work that I want to do for you? In the way I look after family, in the colleagues, in the neighbours, in the the people around me, the responsibilities you've given me. I've got a stack of stuff to do today, Jesus, but I want to do it your way and for your glory, for your praise. Here's a true story of an American soldier who wanted compassionate leave so that he could care for his dying mother. And he was trying to get permission but failed. So he decided he would go straight to the top. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was president at the time, and so the soldier just boldly went to visit the White House and was quickly turned away. (laughs) Knocked on the door, that's it, you're not coming in. And so he sat in a a nearby park, and obviously he's dejected with the thing, what's he going to do? And this little boy came up to him and asked him what was wrong. And so the soldier told him his story, and at the end of the tale, the little boy simply said, follow me. So they went up to the White House Drive, through the doors, down a corridor, through another door, into where President Lincoln himself was sitting. And when Lincoln saw his young son, he said, what is it, Todd? And the little boy replied, Father, there is a man here who wants to speak to you. Please, would you listen to him? Isn't that amazing? I'd love to have seen the soldier's face as they're walking through with this little lad. His access all there is VIP. The son opens up the way to the father. How much more? How much more for us as those called by Christ? For Christians here this morning, that is what we have. Unlimited access to God, the Father, Son and Spirit. There is a welcome mat before his throne, not a keep outside. A welcome mat, not a keep outside. So when those nagging thoughts, those doubts that God hasn't got time for you, again, you need to hear that he has. The door is open. Don't listen to the whisper that says he doesn't love you or thinks you're a lost cause or a waste of time. When you're drained of strength and the thought of serving someone makes you bristle with anger or just slump, how am I going to do this? Run to the Father. Draw near. Go to him. At all these points, whether it's with the guilt, the shame, the need for forgiveness, the lack of strength, at all these points, read these verses. Take them to heart. Rub them in. Act upon them. Let them move you. Let them move you to tears so that you understand there's no need to get through life on your own two feet. Indeed, every day, is a moment for him. He is the only one who can help access all hours. Draw near to God. That's where we find confidence. And secondly, we can be confident Christians by holding on. Look at verses 23 to 25. We're told to hold on to two things. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
And we've just looked at what that hope is, restored life. It's there in the verses before. Restored life with God through Jesus. The reality of life in his kingdom, of forgiveness, of the new heavens, the new earth, the home that we have with him. And then secondly, we're told to hold on to what? Have a look. Verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We're told to, to hold on to each other. You see, one of the problems the writer was facing with his readers was that some of them had given up meeting together and it hadn't been enforced because of a pandemic. It, it was a voluntarily drifting thing away from the congregation, away from the family. The right, who knows, perhaps it seems there's definitely a real threat to their lives. So it could be danger that's motivating it, not meeting up because it's too dangerous. Maybe it's because they didn't really get on with each other. Or they just couldn't be bothered. Maybe life was too busy. Whatever the reason for the drifting away, the writer insists that it's absolutely vital to keep meeting together for each other's sake. You're looking after each other. You're to hold on to one another. And you see, the plain fact is, it is hard being a Christian. We need each other to keep going in the Christian life. That is not something to be afraid of or ashamed of or avoid. That's how God created his family to depend on him and each other. There'll be times when an arm around the shoulder and compassion is needed. At Grace Church Manchester, the GCM, stands for Gospel Community Mission. Community is one of our priorities. Doesn't mean we're experts at it at all. It means we're saved sinners who want to live in community and do better and help each other as flawed people. Christian community both pushes people away and winds us up and pulls us in and flabbergasts us with astounding love. And until Jesus returns, I think that will be the experience. But that doesn't mean we stop. We're told to keep meeting, to hold on to each other. And there's also other times we need to link up a bit like the, the um, Six Nations with the rugby players in a scrum. That's kind of what community looks like, to gain hard yards, to push each other forward with acts of kindness. Look at that in those verses. And let us consider how we may spur one another one toward love and good deeds. You see, it wasn't written, let us spur one another on to have our own private times and comfort and me time and, you know, I, I need my comfort space. Yes, there's a place for comfort. Don't hear me saying that. But it's to spur one another on to love and good deeds. These verses seem to have a deeper resonance, I think, as we rebuild after the pandemic, don't they? I think we all know how good it is to see each other in person, especially as the isolation and loneliness continue to be a major issue for people, whether they're part of church or not, that loneliness is a killer. It's affecting people's mental health. It's affecting suicide rates. The, the Bible's ahead of the curve here. It's pointing out the obvious, and yet so often we forget the obvious. Seeing each other is vitally important. 
Yes, there are differences between us. Yes, we're not going to be best buddies. Yes, we're not going to live in each other's pockets or have some massive commune. We're going to care for each other and pray for each other and do what we can in small, significant ways that are acts of kindness. We're going to open up our lives so that we can be a blessing to one another and be blessed by others to support, to encourage, to give practical help where it's needed, to get God's works done in each other's lives. And you know the writer gives us an additional incentive, a goal. Did you see it in verse 25? All the more, as you see the day approaching. Here he means the day of judgment. Here he means meeting Jesus face to face, in person, not on Zoom, not through a screen, not even through a book. Face to face. So Christians, we meet together, we spur one another on, we send the WhatsApp messages, we pray for one another because we will see Jesus face to face and we want these people there seeing him face to face. Amen? That day spurs us on. That day spurs you on in your office, in your workplace, in the classroom, with your student friends, with the family that are all over the place. That day spurs us on where we feel despair. How is it going to change? It will change because Jesus is where he needs to be and he's coming back. And on that day, Jesus will say face to face to his people, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet, as we see next, there is also a dreadful reality. For some, he'll say, I do not know you. We have to be confident, not complacent. That's the next point. In the light of this day, look at verses 26 to 31 with me. In this section, the pastor clearly turns up the heat. You should have heard the emotional tone go up a notch, surely. Yeah? This issue of people drifting away from the church congregation, from the meeting, is a real serious issue. And Jesus is here, we're seeing people actually publicly turning away from Jesus. We've seen this again in chapter 6, there was a strong warning there. In chapter 4, there was a strong warning. It keeps coming up in the letter. The exhortation is, don't drift, don't drift, don't take this for granted. So let's have a look. Verse 26, what does it say there? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It helps to know that verse 25 and 26 in the original language are linked by the word because. So the flow is we must encourage each other in the light of the day of judgment because, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the truth, then there's no sacrifice for sin left. And the big question that should be on your mind as you're reading this, well, who is the writer talking about? Who's, who's he got in view here? Is it the Christian? Is it, is it the Christian who, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm gossiping. The, 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 the sins that are left in, in Ephesians, that, oh man, I'm doing them all the time. Gossiping, uh, do I honor my parents the right way? Um, you know, I'm not praying as much. Is it, is it that Christian struggling with these sins? 
You could transfer it to, to a whole pattern of issues, couldn't you? From anger, losing one's temper, that self-control, um, overeating, overdrinking. Um, it could be sexual behaviour, it could be work, workaholism, it could be laziness. There's so many different things that fall short of God's glory, that in the Christian life we're going, ah, why? Why am I doing this? Clearly, every Christian still sins in this sense. We are in a daily battle trying to live life as the person God has declared us to be in Jesus. And we have seen the remedy to breaking this pattern, this sin, is here in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. It is to keep coming back to the victory that Christ has secured. It's to say his blood is enough. It is to kill our sin because his blood has been shed. And that is where the power is to keep living obediently. To keep not giving up, but saying this sin doesn't define me because my identity is now in Christ. So Christian, be encouraged. Our sin has gone when we accept Christ. His blood has paid for that. And the way to keep battling sin is to apply that sacrifice again and again. Not re-sacrificing, but going back and saying, this is what you have done, this is how you see me, give me the power to live this out, Lord. Now the writer has this warning in mind for the willful rebellion, the public shaming of Jesus Christ. He's talking to the person in the congregation, the person sort of attached to the church in some way, who at one point seemed to have accepted the truth and yet has turned away from Jesus, returning to an old way of religion, the sacrifices and the temple worship perhaps, or even moving into the polytheism of Rome with its many gods. If you've shut the door on Jesus' sacrifice, how can there be any other way of being saved? That's the logic. Imagine a sailor on a sinking ship and, and the crew have been winched to safety. There's the rescue helicopter ahead. He, he can see the crew are being rescued. And the harness comes back down. He holds the harness in his hands and he attaches something to the harness uh, and then just waves to the chopper and the harness goes up. And, and the rescue crew are there and, and they see that he's attached a note. And the note simply reads, your helicopter isn't good enough. I'll wait for a boat. Like, there isn't a boat coming. You're going to drown with your arrogance. He's turned his back on the only possible rescue. And many people do this spiritually. They might blame it on a bad experience of church or the Christians they've met. They might be persuaded by the arguments of atheists who relish making Christians look foolish. They might trust their own sense of morality and goodness. It will be enough. It will get me through. Or quite simply, they think there are better things to get on with with life, right here and now. This is where it's at. Just invest here. But it boils down to this. If you ignore Jesus as your rescuer, then you are ignoring the only hope of salvation. You are condemning yourself to judgment. It's as clear as that. And so in verse 27, the only fearful expectation of judgment is a raging fire that awaits. It's powerful language here. 
It's powerful language trying to capture something of the emotional and conscious pain of being cast away from God in hell, an utterly godless existence, devoid of any goodness, any blessing, any things that we have had as gifts and not attributing them to the giver. Nothing that brings pleasure and joy for what we were created. Just the enormity of facing a God without a saviour, which is hellish. And this is a result of having deliberately, willfully turned against Christ. Verse 29, they trampled the Son of God underfoot. They've insulted the Spirit of grace. It's been well said that the only pathway to hell is stepping over the crucified body of Jesus. You see, instead of embracing the grace of God with tears of joy and humility, that person spits in the face of God and curses him. The mark of genuine love is to tell someone the danger they face. It's interesting that um, in the US magician duo, Penn and Teller, they've got a great show where they kind of reveal how all the tricks are done. They do the trick and then walk you through it and stuff like this. They've got into a lot of trouble with people. But um, Penn is quite an outspoken atheist. He's clear that he doesn't have a faith. But interestingly, he said this. Pendulette said, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. What, what that word means is essentially to Christians, it's those who share the gospel. Proselytize is to share the gospel, to share the good news, to tell people what we're talking about today. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's worth telling them um, that it's not worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Wow. <laughs> I have that written out and I, I keep it close by because it is such a helpful correction. What a moment of truth. Yes, of course, the way we share, the way we speak to one another, both in church family and outside. It's not an excuse to, to shout at people in the street. It's, we've, we will find genuine ways to serve that fit how we're made to share this gospel. That allow to trust to be built up. So there are opportunities where people feel they can open up, where we can talk about this stuff heart to heart with genuine trust and love. And in our church family, that definitely means we're going to have to invest time in closer friendships. We can't be friends with everyone on the same level or on deeper levels. But we want to invest in those friendships. We, we need to be open with people. We'll, we'll respect their correction. We need to hear their warning. We need to take it to heart. We need to act upon it. You see, if we're aware of the danger of drifting away from the Lord Jesus, then we'll want people to be holding on to us, to speaking into our lives, to asking us how things are going, to challenging our behaviour, to pointing out the things that are dishonouring Jesus, and to keep striving to say, yes, we're holding on to him. It's by grace. Above all, we'll be committed to helping each other to stop that spiritual drift, 
If you saw a child or a friend out on a lilo and they were drifting out, say, in Cornwall on a riptide, you'd do everything, wouldn't you? You'd be screaming at the lifeguards to get those little quad bikes out and then their boat or whatever and their life raft thing. You'd want them do everything to pull them back in. How much more spiritually? How much more spiritually? And then finally, here in verses 32 to 39, we're to be confident by serving God, to go on serving God. The writer finishes this chapter by reminding us of the wonderful future, and that wonderful future means keep going. He reminds his congregation that when they they first became Christians, their life was totally dedicated to God's cause. Can you see that in verses 32 to 34? What did they, why, why did they endure all that stuff? Uh, suffering, publicly exposed to insult, persecution, having your, your um, property confiscated, joyfully accepting that. I mean, why? Why do you go through that? Why did they continue to support brothers and sisters in prison? Because they believed they had a lasting, better possession. It's their future hope of the new heavens and new earth, with God at it, the heart of it that helped them stand firm in the difficulties. I wonder if you ask someone what you're looking forward to, what your immediate response would be. If someone asks you, what are you looking forward to? What would your immediate response be? You know what I wrote down? For me, the new Batman film, 4th of March. You know, that was the gut instinct. And then after the next sentence, if only I had the courage to consistently answer being part of the new creation that Jesus has given us. Yeah, that's the truth. New Batman movie, please. Wow. Is that really going to keep us going? No. The new heavens, the new earth. You see, the more we get God's story into our minds, into our hearts, the more we will know the that it will end rather than with just these vague thoughts about going to heaven. We know the new creation's coming. We know that it's going to be this world restored, a city that's eternal, with Jesus right at the heart of it, with people from every nation, language, and tribe there. And that is what we're made for, without tears, without pain, without suffering. That gets us through. That is the vision, the goal to live for. That is worth losing a house for. And there are people right now who are in that position around the world who are joyfully accepting the persecution and we're bothered, or I am, about what time I'm booking a Batman movie. Heaven help me. And so the writer finishes, verses 35 to 38. Do not throw away your confidence, for it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back. We are not those who are destroyed, but of those who believe and are uh, saved. Can you see we don't lose our confidence because God is faithful to his promises? Jesus was the one who did not shrink back. He's secured it. He's made it right. Even when we feel like shrinking, he's done it. He's not shrinked. He's not turned away. We're in him. And so for the true Christian, 
the one who perseveres right to the end, press on because God will keep his promise. On the 13th of October 2010, 69 days underground, all 33 Chilean miners were rescued. Brandon Fisher, who was the owner of Centre Rock, which led the team of drilling experts to help free the miners, said this. These tools should not have been able to bend and go around some of these curves. I mean, there's no question in my mind that the faith of God and the faith of the world praying for these guys to get rescued was a huge factor, Fisher said. Science, know-how, will, yes, they were all applied, but at the end of the day, the big guy had everything to do with this rescue being successful. I believe that wholeheartedly. Now, for the Christian, there is an infinitely more precious rescue, an infinitely more precious hope of being with Christ forever in his kingdom. So today, will you press on? Will you hold on to each other? Yes, it is going to be hard. Yes, there'll be times when we feel, are we going to get through? But God is faithful. He will keep us. He will keep us in his love. We won't just survive, we will thrive by acting upon this trustworthy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us so much in Jesus Christ. There's so much here, Father, to provoke our response of gratitude, to give joyfully, to worship and praise even in suffering, to know that we have a lasting confidence that cannot be thrown away, a lasting possession which cannot be ruined because Jesus has secured our place in your kingdom. Father, give us strength not to shrink back. This week, help us to be those lights you've called us to be. And not to do that individually, but to do that as community. A family who are saved and being saved. And showing something of your redemptive grace, your profound love in a world that desperately needs it. Amen.